as I listen to everyone, it's always a wonderful thing to see our audience getting together and being able to uh, share w warm and, and uh, intelligent conversation with one another. And now we get an opportunity to move on to our panel and the wonderful discussion that is about to take place. And I would like to take this opportunity to welcome our television and webcast viewers and also wish them a very happy and prosperous 2016. Uh, again, my name is Danny Asaf and the president of the Canadian Club of Toronto uh, for this 2015-2016 uh, season. For decades, the Canadian Club has been at the forefront of providing a venue for the open exchange of ideas on issues that do have an impact on our daily lives. Through our programs and activities, including our youth and young leaders programs, diversity partnerships, media and social opportunities, we offer you access to dynamic political, business and public figures, both from home and abroad. And before I stay, turn the stage over to our panelists, I would like to tell you briefly about a couple of our exciting upcoming events. On Monday, January 18th, the Honourable Rana Ambrose, the Interim Leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, will join us to talk about the challenges and opportunities for Canada in 2016 and the future of the party as it looks to elect its new leader. And on Wednesday, January 20th, Stanley, General Stanley McChrystal, the retired four-star U.S. Army General who led the Allied troops in Afghanistan and author of the book Team of Teams, will be at our podium to talk about what the Army can teach us about modern and modern business leadership. You can order your ticket. You can order your tickets and you review the club's full list of programs at our website at CanadianClub.org. And you can also join the conversation via Twitter. Just follow us at our hashtag at CDNCLBTO or by simply using that hashtag. I would like to extend a special thanks to our event partner, the National Post, which has been a long-standing partner for this annual Outlook program. And today's event is also sponsored and, uh, and, and made possible in part by our presenting sponsors, uh, by our sponsors, including our presenting sponsor, Genesis, and our event sponsor, Ernst & Young and Scotiabank. Thank you very much for your generous support and partnership. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, on your behalf, I am pleased to introduce one of the Canadian Club's most popular and anticipated traditions, the 39th, the 39th Annual Outlook Panel. In partnership with the National Post, as we all plan our year and our objectives uh, and, and those of our organizations, what better way to start the year than benefiting from the knowledge and perspectives of a diverse panel of experts who can provide us with valuable insights into our economy, into the market, and to the politics of the upcoming year. And of course, the more we understand about this issues, these issues, the more effective we will all be in dealing with com what comes at us and what is anticipated to come at us in 2016. And while, of course, no one has a crystal ball, what we do have and what we're going to benefit from are some of the country's most respected and insightful journalists, columns, columnists, and financial experts to help guide us in these messy, and complicated times. So without further delay, please join me in welcoming our moderator, Bruce Celery, to the stage. Hello, everybody. How many of you have been
been here before, to one of these events before? Okay, well, I'm saying that's most of you, even with a napkin waving. All right, we're going to do things a little differently today. Shake up the format a little bit, because we have some extraordinary panelists. We want them to interact. We give them the microphone, they inevitably hog it. So I'm going to uh, avoid that by inviting them up. Uh, Just as I say your name, panelists, if you could join us up here on the stage, beginning with... Terry Corcoran, Financial Post columnist and editor of the FP Comments page. Amanda Lang, anchor Bloomberg Television. Warren Justin, chief economist at Scotiabank. Followed by Diane Francis, editor editor at large, National Post. And rounding things out with Andrew Coyne, columnist at Post Media. These are the panelists. On your uh, table, you will have a, uh, an Outlook card, index card. If you would like to submit a question, please uh, feel free to do that, and they'll send them up my way, and I will include them in the conversation. Before we get started, I want to recap a couple of the predictions from uh, last year, and we can see if they rang true or not as we uh, reflect on what has occurred in the last 12 months. Number one, 2015 predictions from 12 months ago. Oil will climb back above $60 a barrel. False. Obama will approve Keystone. False. The Canadian stock market will continue to rise. False. The U.S. economy will be back in the game. True. The U.S. dollar will continue to gain ground. True. The Canadian dollar will lose ground. True. Greece will threaten to leave the EU and Germany will say, fine, here's the door. False. On the U.S. political front, uh, it will be Jeb Bush against Hillary Clinton. Still too early to call, but some guy named Trump seems to have infiltrated the ranks, so we'll see how that plays out. And we'll round things out with a prediction on Canadian politics. You decide whether or not this is true or false, I don't know, but here was the prediction. The spring and summer will be a long bath in sleaze and entitlement. I don't know. True or false, I don't know. Well, we set the stage with that, and we begin our, uh, our new format with uh, one very simple question. And because Amanda Lang is new and has never been here before, of course I have to start with her. And my question is, and my question will be for all of the panelists ahead, is what is your one bold prediction for 2016? So I just want to start by saying I'm, I'm not new. I'm new to the panel as a panelist, but last year was I moderated. Uh, last year, but then I again, moderated. Last year I was two years also ago, host you moderated. The exchange. Yes, two years ago. <laughs> Is it two years ago? <laughs> two years ago, okay. you moderated. We're so going to have a marital tip up, up here. Down. Uh, so, bold prediction. In the spirit of um, uh, wise people who say if you're forecasting, you should forecast early and forecast often, um, I just lost a bet on this very subject, which is the price of oil. I had to buy somebody a rather expensive bottle of wine because I said oil would return to $80 by the end of 2015. Uh, That was a forecast I made based on the assumption that fundamentals would apply, supply and demand, and the best, of course, uh, antidote for low oil prices is low oil prices. What I didn't factor in were the strange geopolitics of the last year. So I'm beginning this year by uh, making a similar forecast, which is that oil will be above 70 by the end of the year. Ooh. (laughs) A A lot of cred for that. That's bold. And I I actually say it for the same reason, uh, that geopolitics will play a role, including um, Russia 
uh, becoming a little bit less of a, uh, a bad or less welcome neighbor in the zone. <coughs> People have been happy to keep prices low to thwart Russia, and including the recent tensions in the Middle East among OPEC members. So uh, those are, that's my rationale. It's not, again, not fundamental, uh, but uh, I'm sticking with that at least until mid-December. A great place to start. Warren Justin, one bold prediction. Uh, well, Bruce, as I told you earlier, economists don't have bold ideas and bold predictions. <laughs> and uh, I have a little different view on oil than Amanda does, which we might get back to. But the important uh, one I think that we should all re uh, recognize is that tilt in economic geography that we're seeing in our country, away from growth being best in the West, which was a story for much of the last 15 years, <laughs> to uh, a more... Um, uh, diversified growth across the country and with Ontario and BC in a horse race to lead the country, not a hard race to win right now, um, that, that change is going to continue. The economic landscape is changing profoundly and it affects all businesses in this country. And I think we've got to be aware, for, aware of that. And the lower Canadian dollar, which some people see as the offset, is simply not going to get the economy reinvigorated in the way that we've seen in the past because oil was the most important story for Canada over the last 15 years. There was nothing close. It was a national driver, and it is simply gone and likely to be gone for some time. Terry Corcoran, one bold prediction. Uh, well, I, uh, I initially uh, spent, I spent the, the holiday season sort of preparing my, my prediction, which was that the Chinese stock market would crash in the opening week of the year. And, uh, <laughs> and, and that, was, that was prescient, truly prescient. And that Trudeau would launch a free trade talks with China, but <laughs> done, with, done with that, so I've got to start a whole new one, uh, which is uh, political uh, related to the United States, which is that the Republicans will win the presidency, either with Marco Rubio or Donald Trump. Uh, Donald Trump is, I think, the greatest uh, fear that the Democrats have and that Clinton would have in a battle between Clinton and Trump. Trump has a good chance of winning. He has a lot of support and will have a lot of support amongst uh, many Democrats. His views on trade, he's anti-China, he's anti-TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, he's, uh, he's, uh, uh, wants American workers to get the jobs first, not immigrants. These are all policies that have very broad appeal and that uh, 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 account for a lot of his success so far. In any election with Hillary, I think Hillary has a lot of negative things on her side and it will be a challenge for her to, to come face to face with Trump. Now Trump may get squeezed out as Paul Godfrey says in a brokered convention. In that case, uh, Marco Rubio uh, would be the likely candidate, I think, and he could beat Clinton on a number of uh, grounds. Uh, one is that he's quite, uh, he's young, for one thing. Trudeau is 44, Marco Rubio is 44, David Cameron was uh, uh, 40 when he became leader of the Conservative Party in the UK. He's 45 at uh, Prime Minister. Uh, Americans, I think, could be ready for a change. And uh, I'm not necessarily endorsing either of these candidates, although I prefer Marco Rubio to Donald Trump. But I'm just giving you a, a general prediction as to where and why 
this might happen and the Republicans could take the presidency in the end of the year. Diane Francis, to you next. One bold prediction. Well, I, I really think it's interesting to note that Trump gets a lot of attention and he gets TV ratings, but he's not doing well in the polling. Bernie Sanders beats him handily by between 8 and 20 points, depending on the poll, in 12 out of the last 17 elections. Bernie Sanders is a real dark horse. He's fascinating. And I think maybe that may end up also in being a brokered convention where you may have, or a coalition, where you may have Clinton-Saunders running together, and I think that's totally unbeatable because the polls and whether it's on values, on specific issues, or on candidates show that, like myself, I mean, I vote in the U.S. I, I don't miss uh, Donald Trump quote or TV cast, but I would never vote for him, and I think that's pretty typical. So he raises interesting questions, but I think it's the Democrats to lose. Andrew Coyne. Uh, well, as you know, Bruce, I, I don't make predictions. Uh, and in fact, I wasn't going to until the last two speakers. <laughs> uh, I will boldly predict that uh, Donald Trump will not be the Republican nominee. Uh, he has a lead in the polls nationally, but fortunately, can, uh, Republican and Democratic primaries are not run as national polls. Uh, they are long, drawn-out affairs. They are very path-dependent. How you do in one state will depend very much on how you've done in the previous state. Uh, it doesn't even matter how you do, but how you do compared to how you thought you were going to do or how you convinced other people you thought you were going to do. You remember Bill Clinton, you know, won the, primary, the, the New Hampshire primary in 1992. Well, he didn't win it. He called himself the comeback kid, but he came second. But he did better than people had been expecting him to do, and that revived his candidacy and, and ultimately went on to win the presidency. So if you look at Trump's candidacy, uh, he's got uh, a lot of money, he's got high in the polls, but he has no um, uh, staff to speak of in Iowa where it actually really matters. Um, and there's a real potential for him to, to do quite poorly in Iowa. Uh, and then you start getting into this whole expectations game. Part of his appeal, I think, to those who find him appealing is uh, that he projects himself as the ultimate winner. I'm a winner, America's got to be a winner. We'll see how that persona continues if he starts losing some states. Uh, so I, I, I give thanks every day for the elephantine American political process, uh, that it does tend to put a lot of hurdles in front of people. It makes it harder for candidates like uh, Trump to win. If he did win, I think it would be extremely unlikely that he would go on to win the presidency, if for no other reason than I think it would split the Republican Party. I think there would be a good many people in that party who would not campaign under his banner, uh, you might well see, as, as uh, Paul Godfrey was saying, uh, uh, some, some extraordinary scenes at the convention. Uh, it's the nightmare scenario for the party. Uh, and if he did win, I find it extraordinarily hard to believe that he would beat uh, Hillary Clinton, who would, I think, will almost certainly be the nominee for the Democrats. Saunders is uh, an entertaining diversion, but he is not going to ultimately prevail against Hillary Clinton in the convention. Diane, you have something to... Yeah, just one thing, and I think I have very well thought out ideas, but let's not forget that in 08... Hillary was the, it was Hillary's to lose. A guy named Obama won Iowa and then he won everything else. He was also a dark horse like Saunders. It's more, it's more left of center the United States than I've ever seen it and it ever is. And everybody talks about the polling. It's, it's, you know, Republican Party polling, they are 30% of registered voters. Uh, that means he has a very small sliver of the U.S. electorate. 
whereas the one-on-one -on -one polls, Saunders versus Trump, are very telling. And as I say, at the high end, it's 21 points. He beats him by, crushes him. And Obama got two landslides in a row. Anyways, if it's not uh, Trump, who's it going to be? Uh, which was my second choice was uh, not uh, it was Rubio, who I think has a, a good opportunity uh, should he win uh, to make a good solid race out of this, uh, leaving aside the fact that you, uh, the America seems to be moving to the left, although it's hard to judge these things when it comes to an election, other things can happen. So uh, my, my second choice was Marco Rubio, and which was maybe a much more interesting. If Trump is not going to win, then who is it? And how would this other candidate fare against Clinton? And I th Clinton uh, is 68 years old. She's been around a long time. Bill Clinton gets dragged out to, uh, to make speeches, but he's not the Bill Clinton he used to be. Uh, he is a much uh, more subdued, I should make comments about older men, but uh, <laughs> but, but he isn't the Bill Clinton of or, and he's, uh, and he's not the can campaigner he used to be. Uh, and I think there's going to be a lot of people who will like the idea of a younger, uh, a younger president uh, and Rubio's ideas, which we won't have time to get into here, are, are, are not totally crazy the way some of Trump's ideas are. I want to uh, come back to where we started things off with oil. Amanda, you talked about the geopolitical context. We've had recent news on Saudi Arabia and Iran, and some would have thought in another time that would have led to a bump in the price of oil. It did nothing. Does that color your prediction, given that we've had this event and it didn't do anything? So when I, mean, when I say tension in the Middle East, th those are both OPEC members. One thing OPEC has been in agreement on is that they will not curtail production to, to boost the price. Uh, and there isn't anything about this current tension that would change that, quite the opposite, uh, because they, you might see the, a lack of cooperation. Uh, to me, the difference is if it flared up into real tension in the Mideast beyond what we've seen so far. And it does, have, does seem to have that potential. The other interesting wild card is there's has been a long-standing theory that one of the reasons that... Uh, the United States has been so willing to let OPEC depress prices in this way, at great cost to their own uh, fracking industry, has been because it's, it's harmed Russia, it's weakened Russia. Uh, Russia's in a very interesting position right now. It's a quasi-ally in Syria, uh, and suddenly it's not the worst actor in the neighborhood uh, of the old axis of evil. Uh, we've got two of the three acting pretty badly. So uh, to my mind, that, that raises interesting questions. And w will OPEC come back together again and actually manipulate the price? Maybe. Remember, uh, the U.S. had a similar cartel at one point in history, and they do go away. So maybe the cartel is gone forever, uh, but it seems to me that there's a real possibility of tension there. Andrew, can what's I, the point? Yeah. I just want to make a point, but I'd like to remind everybody, the long-run average price of oil in real current dollars is around $35 a barrel. Uh, between 1985 and 2005, the average price was around $30 a barrel. We've had these spikes, two big spikes, up to $100 back down then along up to $100 back down. The question is not what is the, uh, the, the price going to be. Why did we have these $100 spikes and what's different now? And what's different now is we have a whole big mess of oil. Demand keeps going up. It's, it's, it's still hitting records every year on a global basis. Uh, but the supply keeps growing. And the U.S. is now exporting oil all over the place. And uh, the, the world of oil is back down to where it should be and to where the great Julian Simon 
Simons and economists predicted, there will always be new technologies to come along and find more oil and new ways of getting it to the market. Terry, one of the big wild cards, though, and I'm not an expert and I can't find anybody to give a definitive answer on this, frankly, uh, is whether the forecasts for uh, the reserves from fracking are accurate. There is some debate about whether or not uh, there's an, an early deep reserve that then peters off in a very fast way versus conventional oil. I don't know if that's right or not, and I've literally scoured the globe to try to find people. You can find them on both sides. It's a bit like the Middle East politics, uh, but getting somebody to give you a kind of as clear, definitive answer has been hard. That's a big wild card. Andrew, what's the Canadian political context on the oil file these days, and what do you think will unfold in 2016? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I think it's fair to say we don't know on any of the that's questions. My that preface, that's basically my preface to every answer. Yeah. Uh, I, I find as time goes on, it's the right answer to more and more questions. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, we certainly have seen the back of, let's put it this way, we've seen the back of the discussion about uh, Dutch disease. Uh, we've certainly inverted, uh, and, and thankfully so, driven away a lot of very silly discussions that were predicated on $100 oil. Uh, so run all that in reverse. Obviously, uh, we're no longer dealing with... Uh, uh, Alberta is the cash cow of confederation. Uh, we're now dealing with an Alberta that is hurting very badly uh, and which governments at every level seem to be doing their best to make worse. I mean, it is remarkable that at just the moment when you have the, 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 the province hit by it, the worst possible combination of economic circumstances, they are also raising taxes, they are also raising the minimum wage, they are also raising the regulatory barriers. Um, you know, there's a time and a place for these things, and they seem to have chosen to do all the things that they could, could to punish their own economy at the same time. Uh, so that's certainly, you know, it, it's, it's fascinating because, because a lot of the things that we based our politics on over the last 10 or 15 years have now been inverse. Ontario is now uh, coming back uh, to some extent, and I think we'll see some continuing uh, strengthening the Ontario economy in the next couple of years. Uh, and that's, you know, we, we'd, we'd grown used to thinking of the, these things in the inverse. So mm -hmm. it's, it's turned our politics on its end. Uh, Warren, Canadian dollar, you said it's not going to be enough here. So one of the upsides to this dollar decline is we should be stronger, in theory at least, on manufacturing. But you're not super optimistic that that's going to give it the juice. Well, the dollar is very tied to oil. And actually, we do have a bit of a rebound in oil. So we could see the Canadian dollar uh, moving up above the uh, mid-70s. But in the here and now... Uh, it looks like we're stuck with a currency that will be in the sub-75 cent range. And today we're uh, flirting with the 70 cent level, so we may even see the 60s before we see anything stronger. The issue in, uh, in manufacturing is, one, hollowing out. In other words, we lost a lot of jobs that aren't coming back. And the auto sector is a perfect example of that because it is downsized from what it was. It's doing better now, certainly. Where you look at the trade numbers today and it's doing a whole lot better. Um, but it's, its size is smaller than it has been in the past. The second thing is the competition in the U.S. market is different than in the past. Our competitors are more numerous. Uh, they are more sophisticated in terms of production, in technology, and it's a harder game to play in that market space. And so uh, when we're trying to gain market share back in the U.S., we're facing a lot tougher competition than we, when, than we did before. And the third thing is um, a lower dollar is not the panacea for manufacturing. Going up the value-added curve, developing niche markets is going to be where it's at. And that's not going to be uh, compatible with a growth in the assembly line business. It's going to be in firms that are small, medium-sized, 
that are globally focused, that have uh, built into global supply chains, and less U.S.-centric by far. So the good news, manufacturing is going to do better over the next year. It's not going to offset some of the losses that we see in the commodity space. Uh, but by and large, we should celebrate the type of new manufacturing business that is growing because that will be the future for higher paying, higher value added, and uh, more sophisticated uh, manufacturing in this country over the next 20 years. Diane, do you want to weigh in with your predictions for interest rates here and stateside? Because they obviously go into this whole salad of what our economy looks like in 12 months. Yeah, well, we know that uh, the Fed is, is embarking on a series of increases. Uh, and, you know, that's just going to strengthen their dollar uh, to a certain extent, which hurts us. And I think our bank is quite constrained in terms of the fact that we have pretty lackluster soft growth. One thing I did want to say, however, about the, the dollar uh, disparity is that I'm, I'm, in, uh, I'm on the board of a private oil company. I'm on the public board of a gold company. We would like a 62-cent Canadian dollar because we make U.S. dollars, and our costs are in Canadian. I mean, the offset for the resource industry, if your resources and your production is in Canada, your costs are in sea dollars, which are much lower. Um, for instance, in the company that I'm involved in, every dollar, every cent that it goes down, the sea dollar goes down, we get $4 million more free cash flow a year because our costs are all in, in Canadian dollars in, in the country. So whether it's agricultural commodities, which are doing quite well, uh, whether it's oil, okay, the price isn't great for gold and the price isn't great for oil, but we get, really get a big offset. Peter, uh, I will make one uh, prediction, and only one, uh, and that is that we will not see a spike in interest rates that, that, that some people sometimes fear. When we talk about the, the allegedly uh, um, you know, um, bubble uh, housing market, which I don't think is a bubble, but that's a, an interesting debate for another time. But when people talk about it, you, you try to point out to them, well, okay, yes, uh, you know, household debt is up, but so is our household assets. And household assets are five times household debt. Net worth has never been higher. And people will say, oh, yeah, 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 but what if interest rates go up? Then all that will be illusory. And you say, well, then how do you get that big spike in interest rates? And it's very hard to see. It's always hard to see, of course, where, where, the, where future events will come from. But it's very hard to see how you can make a plausible case for any kind of spike in interest rates. The exception would be if we were trying to defend some kind of exchange rate. And one of the great achievements, in my view, of Canadian public policy over the last several decades is the floating exchange rate. And it's remarkable not only the, the policy, but the fact that there's such political consensus around it. We've gone from 62 cents up to $1.05, now down to 70 cents. And I don't doubt it's been a wrenching adjustment for many industries and many companies. But it is so much better than the alternative, as certainly the Europeans are, have taught us, I think, uh, uh, irrevocably that uh, the one thing that could really create that nightmare scenario of a spike in interest rates and people, you know, getting into trouble with their mortgages would be if we were trying to defend some kind of exchange rate. The fact that we're not doing so is one of the great guarantors of our future prosperity. Do you think it would take a spike, though, for the 27-year-old who bought the condo, had the expectation of a monthly payment, and it goes up 1 percent, 2 percent when they go to renew, that that could be enough of a hit to cash flow? If you look at, and Warren would have probably the more exact figures, but the, the um, um, mortgage plus interest as a house, share of household income, and the Bank of Canada keeps stats on this, it's at something like 30 cents on the dollar. That is lower than it's been at most times in the last several decades, if not the lowest. So people actually have not loaded up to quite the extent that people are claiming in terms of debt. There's obviously going to be pockets of situations where it might be problematic, but 
the kind of you know disaster scenario that people might conjure out of this, it's just very hard to see where you get. Any that disagreement point. on housing? Uh, can I actually just say on the weak dollar? One of the reasons why uh, a weak dollar policy, which we obviously nobody claims we have, but the, we, our dollar is likely to stay weak, especially as the U.S. moves to raise rates, and that <laughs> currency remains a reserve. Uh, Diane has highlighted the real problem for Canada, which is that it favors the very extractive industries that have hampered us from diversifying into higher-end manufacturing, focusing on service, doing all of the things that actually provide good quality jobs for our children. Uh, and so to me, the, one of the big threats we have, and it, the solution is a fiscal one, a policy one, not a monetary one, is to think about uh, how we diversify this economy. And a weak dollar actually keeps us, uh, at least parts of the, the economy, sheltered from that reality. In defense of mining and oil, <laughs> mining has the highest wages of any sector in the country, including Bay Street. Only and because we can't mine in Mexico. And our level of education in the, in the resource area is very high. So it's not a drag. It's the others that haven't found a w better way to make a living. I think it's probably worth saying that we have a trade deficit right now. We import more than we export, okay? So you've got to look up both sides. It's a very complex situation, and you heard with Hyundai earlier on the, the challenges that they're facing in the car industry. But going to the interest rate side, the Fed may raise interest rates a little, but it's going to be at best one, two, skip a few. They're focused on growth. And so that's going to be a modest increase. Their longer-term rates may go up a little. That will impact our three- and five-year mortgage rates, but it's not going to be significant. And coming back into Canada, the Bank of Canada facing the type of challenging environment we have here I don't think is moving any time this year. But looking at the housing market, debt levels are high. Income is not going to be growing because employment growth is going to be slowing. And the two things that can influence our housing market are rising interest rates, a little bit, not a lot, and job prospects, whether you have a job or expect to have a job or expect to keep your job. And in general, the balance is tipping to a more cautious uh, environment. We have many, uh, many people out there that are getting nervous. The first-time home buyer has not seen their, their wages go up that much. And the balance between renting versus owning is changing. 70% of Canadian homeowners or sorry, 70% of Canadian households are in a homeownership situation. Never been higher. And in the current environment, I think there's opportunities in the rental market. I think there's still a lot of positive things even in our high-cost markets like Toronto and Vancouver, but we are going into a different housing reality. Hmm. We've been talking about it for a long time. There's no crash, in my view, but the rise in uh, costs of housing, the change of interest rates, the slowdown in jobs, and the change in the regulatory environment are all suggesting caution. I just want to add on interest rates. I mean, I stopped following interest rate uh, policy about six years ago, and I stopped writing about it except for once. Uh, the, the Fed and the Bank of Canada have had a zero interest rate policy for seven years. I don't see how they're going to change that. It will go up gradually over perhaps a period of time, but nothing is happening, nothing has happened for seven years, uh, except constant discussion amongst economists as to whether the next uh, two weeks the, the Fed is going to, uh, to raise the Got to give you something to do, right? The Warren, real, the real interesting issue, I think, if I can change the subject on our... You can. Our, uh, is, uh, ...is Canada's fiscal situation over the coming year in, uh, and the fact that the, the federal government is planning big spending uh, it's announced a deficit a target that could allow it to raise uh, uh, 
the, the deficit to as much as 20 or 25 billion dollars a year, depending on how it how it operates. Uh, the provinces are all running deficits, and uh, Kathleen Wynne over the weekend, I heard her interviewed on the CBC, uh, and he, she was being asked about what she expected from federal-provincial relations, and she said, I'm quoting here, we're going to expect some money. <laughs> There's going to have to be some money on the table. She didn't quite use that tone. but And then she repeated it, going to have to be some money on the table. There is no money to, uh, to be distributed around in, the, in sort of a grand, sweeping, stimulative way. Uh, Why do you say that? I mean, the Liberals campaigned on a promise that they would spend. So they would spend, but they, 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 they promised a, a limited amount of spending. They promised to, to hold the deficits at $10 billion. Now, that's out the window. Uh, Mr. Morneau has said, the finance minister has said, they now have a different target in mind, which is that to keep the debt as a percentage of GDP somewhat below what it is now, which is 31%. Now, uh, you can keep it at 29, 28%, and you still run deficits of $20 billion. I don't think that's going to be sustainable to be able to do that over, over a period of several years. Uh, the Ontario government faces a fiscal situation. The Alberta, uh, its last budget, project, its projections for the coming year set the price of oil, I forget the exact number, $50 for this coming year, $62 for the year after that, and $68, $70 for the year after that. Now, if those numbers, uh, if those oil price numbers don't come in, which seems likely to me that they, the, 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 we, we won't be hitting $60 oil in, 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 in anytime soon, uh, their fiscal situation is going to get any worse. Uh, every province is now a have-not province, and the money's got to come from, I don't know where it's going to come from. Andrew, what's your we have to correct one thing here, uh, and that is not all provinces have bad finances. The BC no, government right. has, been, have has been running a, uh, a very prudent policy for about a decade and a half and actually are in quite a favorable situation both with respect to their current finances and their outstanding debt. But I think the point you're making is that this is the time when there is this enticement to spend more. And in a short time, a term period, that's a great idea, but the short term can turn into the long term. I've seen that. I've been doing this for 40 years. I've seen this before. And the real challenge, whether it's at the federal level or at the provincial level, is to say, okay, we're going to ramp up spending now and then forget to turn off the taps when things get better. Which is what I want to ask you, Andrew. At what point does it become an issue, at issue for the electorate? Because Trudeau came in saying there will be a deficit. Now it's going to be a little higher and a little higher and a little higher. At what point does it tip into alarm bells? Uh, it takes a long time. If you go back to the 70s and 80s, it took a long time. took longer for the politicians to clue in, but it took a, a fair amount of time for the public to clue in. Uh, it's hard to get to make it salient to people until they've had a really bad experience. Now, we had the bad experience in the 90s that inoculated us for a while uh, when we were spending 37 cents of every tax dollar just to pay interest on in the debt. That kind of knocked it into people's heads. Uh, but memories fade and, and, you know, people die and younger people come up who don't have any experience of it. And, and lo and behold, we've discovered we weren't as inoculated against the deficits as we thought we were. Now, you know, you can always make logical arguments why you can and should run a deficit in the short term, but I agree with Warren, uh, short terms have a, have a tendency of becoming long terms, and it's the long term that's the real problem for the provinces, even the ones that are quote unquote in good shape today, because of the demographic and the healthcare situation. So even the provinces that are uh, healthy today 
are you know converging on 50 cents of, of every dollar going to pay for one program for health care, and that's with the baby boomers having only just begun to retire. Uh, so we've got a really, really bad challenge in the longer term as a country because we've relied over the last 30, 40, 50 years not only on, on rising energy prices in more recent times but on, on a rapid expansion of our labor force. That's how we expanded output. We didn't you know, do a lot of productivity increases. We just added more workers because there were lots of them around. We had the fastest labor force growth of any country in the developed world over the last 50 years, 200% growth. Over the next 50 years, it's going to grow by 10%. So... We're looking at a scenario we've never seen before where we're going to have 25% of the population by 2030 over the age of 65, and that's going to stay uh, for the rest of that century, this century, uh, where an increasing proportion of those over 65 are going to be over 70 and over 80 and over 90. And as I speak as a future old person, old people cost a lot to look after. Uh, the costs of healthcare ramp up and up as the longer people uh, hold on. So uh, that's a problem for the provinces. And there are, I think, credible projections, on a, admittedly on a, on a business-as-usual basis, i.e. nothing changes and something always does change, but it just as a straight-line forecast, you can look at one or more provinces going bankrupt in the 2030s. Amanda, did you want to weigh in on that? I just, I, most of us in the room, I think, would agree that uh, the kind of collective agreement that deficits are bad uh, and that, you know, that the kind of Martin Kretschmer uh, pursuit of zero deficits was a good thing. Um, my question I would put to my fellow panelists, I guess, if I can ask a question, Bruce. You absolutely is, can. Uh, having said that, and even with the fear that deficits short-term turn into deficits long-term, what advice would you give to the prime minister or to, or to Minister Morneau about an economy that is uh, at best anemic, pinning all of its hopes, uh, not on any of the fast-growing economies that, that helped our commodities, but on a kind of a subpar U.S. economy. I mean, Terry, I, I understand that stimulative spending uh, is not always popular, but what alternative is there to help this economy? There, there's a subtle aspect of this we've got to think about. If you're going to spend an extra $10 billion or $15 billion, the issue is what you're spending it on, Right. And effectively in the past, what we've done on an emergency basis, going back to the financial crisis, is spend it in ways that were very diffuse and did not lead to productivity gains, did not lead to infrastructural improvements and the like. So I think the biggest point in advice is if you're going to spend the money anyway, make sure that the uh, individual projects are going to add on net to economic opportunity in this country. What would be some examples? Is it highways and bridges? Well, that's always the panacea, right? But to improve a good example in the GTA in terms of gridlock and the like, how do you alleviate that in terms of jobs, in terms of business ability to service markets? Uh, and focus it may be on your fiber optic network. It may be on a variety of telecommunications uh, issues. But to focus it not on what each individual city wants necessarily, because you may find that more bike paths and, and a variety of other things, which actually are quite useful in and of themselves but not productive, uh, to getting down to an envelope of, of, uh, of infrastructure projects that actually have some net economic value because our biggest challenge over the next 10 years is how we're going to engender sustained job creation in this marketplace. Um, whether the Canadian dollar goes lower or not, we have to figure out how we move up the value-added curve. We should just be clear the Liberals are doing nothing like what Warren has just recommended. Uh, <laughs> I think that's quite fair. But even if I were, even if I believed that fiscal stimulus was indeed stimulative, and never was there a dogma so ill-furnished with actual living examples of success, 
but even if I believed, even if I believed that, even if you worked off of strictly Keynesian premises, a, a, a deficit of 10 or even 20 billion dollars is a drop in the bucket. It is, you know, less than 1% of, of, of GDP. Uh, so it's not going to have those kinds of miraculous effects, even if they were going to spend it on infrastructure, which they're not. If you delve into their numbers, uh, only $5 billion of the spending that they were identified was for quote-unquote infrastructure, and that's using the liberal definition of infrastructure, which is basically everything. <laughs> I mean, infrastructure used to mean roads and bridges, you know, except that didn't sound sexy enough, so we called it infrastructure. And then, having changed the name, we discovered you could smuggle everything under the infrastructure label. So daycare centers are infrastructure, and, you know, carbon filtration plants are everything is uh, infrastructure, and it still only comes to $5 billion out of the total of what they were planning to spend. So there was a bit of a con game in, the, in their platform to begin with. Now, the way that they sold this as being not just about short-term stimulus but about long-term productivity was, well, these are projects we're going to invest in that will pay a long-term return to the economy that will make it worth taking on that extra debt. Great. How are you going to measure that return? Well, one way you measure it is what are people willing to pay for it at the margin? So, for example, if you were going to fund roads with road tolls where you can actually get a measure of what, what value people are getting out of that investment, that would make some sense, except the minute you say that, the minute you can start charging for something, then the question becomes, well, then why does it have to be financed out of taxes? Why couldn't you finance that privately? Why couldn't you have private companies investing in roads in the expectation of getting the toll return from it? And so the very argument that says this is the time to invest calls into question why it's a time for necessarily for the government to invest rather than setting up opportunities for private investment. So the whole thing, it seems to me, it just Although, Andrew, you could tail. use that argument to, uh, for every public investment in history, and, no. and the evidence shows the private sector won't support those well, investments, no, and we do need them. I'm merely making the case for public goods versus private goods. The nature of a public good is it's something you can't charge for. That's why we invest publicly in things like defense, because you can't charge you know, people to use the defense. Things like roads and bridges you can charge for, and if you can charge for them, you should, because you should keep the tax dollars for things that can only be financed through taxes. Otherwise, you're using up valuable tax revenue. Does that apply to medical services, too? Sorry? Does that apply to medical services, too? I, I am not a fan of user fees. It's a whole you know, separate set of issues when it comes to health care. I am a fa in favor of pricing within the within the publicly funded envelope, having prices, you know, between doctors and hospitals and that kind of, of internal market, mm -hmm. I don't think you necessarily send it to the consumer because you face the problem of, you know, use jargon, asymmetric information. Consumers don't have enough information, in my view, to be able to make those kinds of calls when it comes to their own health care. I want to sneak in one last topic here. Uh, Diane, we haven't talked about the stock market. What is your bold prediction for whether or not we are up, down, or flat in 12 months? I know it's impossible to say, but you can answer and buy yourself some time by giving a flavor as to why you hold the view that you hold. Well, our stock market's known as a barbell. It's banks and resources. That's it. So tell me where the commodity price is going to be. That part of the barbell will rise. Tell me how the banks are going to do, which I don't think is going to be great because our economic outlook is lackluster then it'll probably stay the course. So I would say, on balance, it'll be where it is or lower. Any Anyone else want to make a bet on where we might be 12 months from now on the market? Wow, with a thud that went. With a <laughs> thud. With a thud. All right, here's what we're doing in our last couple of minutes. I want to finish, and perhaps this will be our positive note. I'm not sure. My last question is, what is your one hope for 2016? 
So it isn't necessarily a prediction. It could be something that you want to see, even it's a snowball's chance in hell that will actually occur. What is your one hope? And Andrew, I'll begin with you. Uh, my hope is that we will continue on the path of creating uh, contestable politics federally. Uh, what I mean by that is we've suffered as a country over the decades from having, I think Richard Gwynn called it, one-and-a-half-party rule, you know, where you had the liberals in for long, long stretches of time and then occasional blips with the Tories. Uh, and it, it had malign effects on both parties. I'll, I'll apologize to members of both parties in advance for this, but if the besetting sin of the liberals from having been in power too long was a certain arrogance and entitlement, uh, the besetting sin of the conservatives, I think we saw in the last government, was a certain sense of resentment and grievance. Uh, they, they, you know, they lost too many elections and it got to their, their psyche. Uh, and we'll only get healthy politics, in my view, when both parties think they can win or lose any given election with equal probability. So that they both have to have both hope that they can win and also humility that they might lose. Uh, it's good, it was good that the election resulted in the sense that it's always good to throw the bums out of whatever party every now and then just to keep them honest. It was good the way, that, I'll say this, the way the, liberals, the way the liberals won the election was good for our democracy. The result was good in that we've got, uh, you know, lots of conservatives, a fair number of conservatives in Quebec. We've got liberals in the West. Atlanta, Canada, it was unfortunate to see a sweep there. But we've got relatively contestable politics in much of the country. But we've got to continue with that progress. The two major uh, parties that are out of power now, the conservatives and the NDP, have a real opportunity, I think, to rethink things now. And I hope that they will conclude that what we would like to do is to offer the public a choice rather than everybody's just ending up in the mushy middle. I'd like to see distinct offerings from all those parties. I think that's a contribution they can make. But the final point I'll make is I think electoral reform that we're all going to be talking about till we're blue in the face this year I think is a big part of that. Uh, we, can we can do better than our present system in terms of creating a kind of permanently contestable politics. The, the first-past-the-post system has been part of the problem for us over the decades. I think this is a very hopeful year in that regard. Diane, you're next. Under a minute. Yeah, I, I don't think uh, changing the bylaws is possible, uh, however desirable, uh, or will necessarily do the trick. I would hope that this new government, and we've always seen some glimmers in it, that they will listen to the civil service the professional civil service who've been around for a long time and know the score, they will listen to the public and they will read the geopolitical wins accurately so that they can step down from some of the more ridiculous things that they proposed and do some of the things that they should, like tax cuts for venture capitalists. That's real growth building, not ribbon cuttings of, you know, daycares and roads to nowhere. Warren. This is a hope or a dream, right? This is a hope. Hope or a dream, okay. It could be a dream. It could be uh, a deluded, yes. unicorn-filled fantasy. I don't know. Thank, but thank you. That, that opens it you right will. up. I'm retiring, too, so I can say almost anything I you want. You can say right? anything. I won't uh. be back next year to, uh, to uh, have to live up to the forecast. Um, I think the most important thing right now is for governments to start thinking in the national interest, reducing interprovincial trade barriers, thinking not in terms of how much more money is on the table for the individual government, but how we effectively streamline and reduce the overall cost of federal provincial transfers and the like. We've got to reinvent the, uh, the government infrastructure in this country to make it more streamlined and effective. Amanda. Other than the fervent hope that Donald Trump gets nowhere near the American presidency, uh, I would say I hope, I, as, to Warren's point, that this is a government that doesn't squander its majority. It's a beautiful thing. It allows you to do big vision uh, stuff. Mm -hmm. And rather than sort of tinkering around the edges at thinking governments can grow the economy, I hope they actually implement policies that help businesses grow the economy, because that's what we need. Terry. 
Um, uh, I'm going to uh, ride one of my uh, hobby horses here. I'm going to hope that climate change diminishes as a focus of government policy and that we do not attempt to impose... I mean, I'm doing this just to irritate Andrew, by the way. Uh, <laughs> Andrew, is does, it working? Does is not it working? impose a carbon tax, either, either nationally or, or provincially beyond what we're now uh, looking at. Uh, we have much more important things to deal with in terms of the immediate economy than to run around imposing a carbon tax that is really going to morph, if I read the, the tea leaves correctly, into a tax collection machine. And it's going to get redistributed all over the place. Uh, the, 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 the carbon reduction idea will sort of drift to the background. We'll be looking at all the things we'll be able to do with this money, including create new windmills and that's my hope. All right. Well, my hope is we'll all have a chance to gather again in a year's time and do this once more. Thank you very much to our panelists. <laughs> Round of applause. Great. And just briefly, thank you very much, Bruce, for leading such a lively discussion and pulling out those insights from our very knowledgeable and experienced speakers. I think now we have seen perspectives that are going to prepare us for this year, both in terms of geopolitics, domestic politics, U.S. politics, price of oil, interest rates, and where we're going to see the resource market go. So hopefully now we feel we're going to be empowered to make the best of 2016. Thank you again. And thanks again to our annual Outlook partner, the National Post, and our presenting sponsor, Genesis, and our event sponsors, Ernst & Young and Scotiabanks, for contributing to the success of today's luncheon. And please, before, you, before I leave, if I could point your attention to our survey cards on the table. We're always looking for your feedback. This concludes today's program. We hope to see you at future events. Thank you. Happy New Year. And God bless. Take care.